Hello, folks. This is the second broadcast of Campaigniacs, brought to you by Post Media during this election campaign. We're now available on Google Podcasts. And with me today on this second uh, podcast is a very special guest, an old friend of mine. We go back way longer than either one of us want to <laughs> admit right now, covering politics. Stephanie Langenager. Did I ever pronounce that right? Have I ever yeah, pronounced you- it? You pronounced it right just now. Just for the first time. For the first time. Thanks, old man. Good, good to see you, old buddy. Um, thank you so much for doing this. And of course, with also with me is uh, Arthur White Crummy, who has been with us on these podcasts since the beginning, which was just last week, and of course is covering the legislature for the uh, for uh, the Post and Star Phoenix and is covering this election. So I guess that's where we're going to start, Arthur. Tell me about the week and tell me about the influence of federal politics uh, in, uh, in this campaign already, because I find it fascinating. Almost every election since the beginning of time that Stephanie and I have covered has had some element of federal politics in it. What are the developments this week as it relates to the court case, and and how do you see that playing out a bit in terms of campaign strategy already? Yeah, well, I think it's kind of interesting that we seem to come, we seem to have come back to that default mode after what almost appeared to be an extended truce, where there were very little, uh, there were very little attempts to throw around the name Justin Trudeau as an insult until just the last few weeks. and uh, we've again seen some of the Saskatchewan party advertising attacking Ryan Miley as in league with Justin Trudeau. And this is all coming as some of these long running federal provincial disputes come back to the fore. So of course, as you said, Murray, we now have the carbon tax reference case before the Supreme Court. Uh, we've had the premier send a letter to Justin Trudeau again, calling for a uh, pause of the carbon tax and asking for an assurance that the uh, Prime Minister's green agenda expected today in the federal throne speech is not going to be, quote, code for shutting down our oil and gas in uh, our oil and gas industry. So really, I think that we're starting to get a preview of what we're going to see during the campaign, where the classic strategy of running against Ottawa as much as running against your opponents uh, is uh, is going to be very present once again. Is it part of the timing now that we're past pandemic critical and into the meat and potatoes issues of uh, federal provincial relations politics? It was really hard, I think, or harder for uh, the SAS party government to take a run at uh, Trudeau when he was incredibly popular uh, in the early days uh, dealing with the pandemic. But after the wee scandal and everything else, maybe it's a lot easier and uh, maybe there's more mileage actually for uh, the SAS party than there might have been normally. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that when uh, when the economy was uh, what, what, what was in extremely serious jeopardy and 73,000 jobs had been lost and so many people were dependent on federal support, either through the wage subsidies or through CERB, uh, people maybe appreciated the role of the federal government a little bit more and the province had a really strong impetus to uh, work collaboratively in order to secure some of those dollars. But now that uh, now well now that the campaign is amping up and now that uh, the pandemic is becoming kind of background noise, I think that uh, we're starting to see again a return to normal. 
Steph, I think a lot. Well, maybe some people forget about about you is that you've been in Saskatchewan for uh, most of your life, except for you know your period growing up in BC uh, briefly, and you know this province inside out. You're running a radio program that's right now, uh, I think, the most popular in morning show in in, in uh, this province in right Regina, now. Regina, yeah, it's the oh, number one show in Regina. Yes. Here, like you know these, you know this province. Why does this keep working? Why <laughs> do people not see through it after a while? And and I'm not suggesting it's right or wrong. I'm suggesting it just is politics. And when it comes to politics, people usually are pretty cynical and say, oh, I don't know if I, I I like this. But I think when it comes to the federal provincial fight, there's still an appetite for it. I just, and I honestly don't get that. Well, you know what? I think maybe it stems back. We moved here in 1980 um, and there was a huge push, as you know, in the subsequent years to uh, oust the NDP and bring in a new regime with Grant Devine and the, and the federal government. But even and, and definitely when we moved here, my dad, I've said many times, was conservative and definitely was a part of the wave of rural people who were excited about Grant Devine getting elected. But I think he and people who are new Democrats in Saskatchewan, farmers, I mean, what they had in common was the fact that Ottawa has never seemed to fully understand, uh, understood Western Canada or the reality of farming in Western Canada, which, as you know, is different than, say, the Lyle Van Cleef School of Farming in Ontario. Yeah. We have different farms here and we have a different reality here. And uh, I mean, my dad still remembers the Prime Minister Trudeau Sr. literally giving us the finger and still talks about the national energy policy. And I think on, on that front, he might have something in common with people who don't support the same provincial political parties as he does. So I think it works in, in some respects because we do feel a bit misunderstood here in Western Canada by by Ottawa and, and that to to campaign on nobody really understands us there the way we understand ourselves has just always worked wherever you are on the spectrum. I've always been curious why conservatives are able now to capitalize on it, on, on this sentiment way more effectively than new Democrats are. And I look at it from the, from the sentiment that you described uh, 20, 30, 40 years ago, uh, when we were in the middle of the national energy pro, uh, policy and other issues, constitutional issues, uh, that where new Democrats were actually at the forefront because they were running into government at the time. I guess I guess perspective on perspective are looking for is twofold. This NDP is no longer your, your father's or anybody's NDP. They, they seem disorganized. They don't seem to have focus. They don't seem to connect. What is it especially about this? factor in relation to federal politics and just generally things that you've seen evolve where they just don't connect anymore in the way that that obviously they did when you and I were covering uh, this place several years ago and there was actually an NDP government that that was relatively popular and kept winning elections four in a row. <laughs> yeah, and held rural seats, as you know. Rural seats, the, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, it's a good question, Murray. I think definitely one thing that the NDP has not done since there was an NDP government is um, keep a leader. So, yeah. I mean, even if you if you imagine that you know uh, Roy Romano was kind of a 
apprenticing, if you will, under Alan Blakeney. He was definitely a known quantity by the time he became the premier. And we've had a series of, of premiers, as you well know, who've not had electoral success, then been eaten by their own and ousted. Pretty cynical move to bring back Dave uh, Dwayne Lingenfelter as a leader. Same thing for him, and then again for Cam Broughton. And now we're at Ryan Miley, third leader in, is it third leader in three elections that we've yes. got now for the opposition? It's just, if you think that right now, federally, Aaron O'Toole is still on a high, I'm Aaron O'Toole tour across Canada to really get known to his conservative base. Well, what chance has the NDP in Saskatchewan to really have anyone who is is known to voters, what, what they really stand for, particularly when in those leadership fights, they've had to argue with one another about what their policy ought to be. And then I think the other thing that you and I have noticed covering the Saskatchewan NDP in the legislature, which is different than how the party operates at its grassroots level, we've seen it fairly afraid, uh, uh, at least for a while, to take many risks. You'll remember that for instance, when Cam Broughton, I've got a dog who really wants to say okay. something about this. When Cam Broughton wanted to talk about the coal industry in Estevan and about whether carbon capture and all of that was worth the expense, uh, but also didn't want to um, lose any votes from unionized coal workers. Well, you just, you can't always have things both ways uh, or it makes you look like you don't really stand for anything. So I, I, I think it might be a combination of waffling policy and no continuity of leadership there combined with what that would do to the internal morale of a party to be constantly battling leadership races. Yeah, that's a good answer and superior dog handling. At the same time, which I, 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 don't, I don't know how you juggle both. Uh, it, it, it actually, you have one point that I want to, uh, that I think is particularly relevant to a couple of stories. Arthur has been working about wall shakers, and that is the NDP not getting their own act together, whether it's on a policy wise or just generally respecting and understanding the direction of leader and actually figuring out that maybe three weeks before election isn't the best time to get in an ugly fight over who's running a constituency and who's not and whether a candidate should run or not. How difficult is this going to be in terms of Sandra Morin losing her candidacy in Wall Shakers a month ago and now, uh, according to your story uh, in today's paper, Arthur, having even more trouble that we see the resignation uh, or the removal, I guess, of the party president uh, is, the, is this too inside politics or do people generally see this as a big NDP problem where Ryan Miley isn't going to be seen as effectively running anything and if he can't run, I guess, his own party, uh, he can't uh, uh, run the province. Is, is, is this already becoming a factor in that sense, Arthur, do you think? Or? I mean, it, it's hard to tell how much this is going to ripple outside of Regina Walsh Acres. Clearly, it does affect the perception of the NDP and the competence of their organization uh, and, and the way that that's viewed. But even within Regina Walsh Acres, I mean, that is really a seat that they cannot afford to lose. Uh, I mean, if they're to have any chance at expanding, uh, it's going to be in seats like uh, Regina Walsh Acres. And given that they don't even have a candidate now five weeks before the election and uh, that the local membership appears to be completely divided uh, and, and and to a large extent, uh, 
uh, unsupportive of the leader's decision making in that case, I think that that's going to make it extremely difficult for them to take that seat. The SAS party has been at work for months on it. But uh, clearly, uh, there's a lot of mystery here about exactly what happened. And I think that everybody is going to read into the situation differently. Um, what I find to be really interesting is uh, that the 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 two women who have now been ousted, uh, Sandra Morin from her candidacy and Barb uh, Diddy from the uh, presidency of the Constituency Association, they, they, they're framing this as 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 bullying. Uh, Sandra Morin has even suggested that there's uh, an extent of a sexist element to it. I of course can't comment on to what extent that's true, but this is clearly something that the NDP can 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 cannot afford to continue to have as a prominent story as they're gearing up for a campaign. Well, this is fascinating to me because who would have thought the first political leader uh, in this campaign to be uh, facing sexism charges would be Ryan Miley, given that this is not the NDP brand. This is not certainly Ryan Miley's uh, uh, brand, but I think it is an issue out, out there. And you talk about it. We're going to get it into it in the uh the second segment of this podcast where uh, you've done interviews related to the difficulties of women candidates and uh, having uh, more uh, women representation in, in the Saskatchewan legislature. What did you find out in uh, that piece in broad strokes? Can, could you just, before we get into that second segment, talk about a little, uh, Arthur, in terms of what we're looking at? Um, in terms of what I learned uh, yeah. from uh, Daniel Chartier? And yeah. uh, from the president, the chair of you know equal voice here in Saskatchewan. Yeah, I mean they 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 obviously spoke about some of the well-known challenges of uh, recruiting women to you know political parties and the uh, barriers that women face in the uh, nomination process. And again, we're seeing that again uh, this election. Uh, the Saskatchewan party only has eleven of its uh, sixty-one candidates who are women. Um, and uh, we just basically talked about uh, like why that continues to be the case in 2020. And we delved into Daniel Chartier's uh, personal career to see what kind of uh, light it sheds on the double standards and uh, uh, differential expectations that women face as they try to juggle politics and personal life. Uh, it just so happens we have with us perhaps one of the best Persons or most qualified persons to talk about this. You're you're probably going to be embarrassed for me to say this, but Stephanie, folks, is absolutely uh, a forerunner in terms of women's coverage in politics. I, I've worked with other women before Stephanie, and I've worked with other women after. But what you have done in terms of in terms of ledge coverage uh, is historic, dynamic. It, it's it's amazing. But so I, I guess I'm going to ask you a question from the other end of the spectrum. Uh, is what barriers or what difficulties did you think you encountered as uh, a female reporter at the legislature that maybe I just didn't see, didn't recognize in my time there because as a guy you wouldn't, you know? Well, you know, I think fewer than female politicians face, to be honest with you, just to Arthur's point, I've certainly done interviews over the years about why there's still a dearth of women running for office, even though we see women's representation in other fields, think of medicine, that have done much better uh, over the years that were also at one time disproportionately male-centered. And I think journalism moved 
quicker than politics also. So I think well, that's, that yeah, I, that's interesting. Like doctors uh, that have become dominated, more graduates from med medical school now are women, more uh, graduates from journalism schools now are women as well. And sorry, guys, it'll probably drive your pay down because you know we make so much right now. <laughs> but I think, I think that's made it a little bit well, easier for, yeah. <laughs> for me than if I had been in politics itself, because there were more of me uh, at the time, but fewer when I started some 25 years or more ago. And I think what that meant for me, Murray, that it may not have meant for you, is that it was just more unusual to see me or women covering politics, covering political conventions. You'll remember when we started, we used to get a lot of tips in the bar. You would drink yeah. with uh, MLAs in a way that I'm not sure anyone does anymore. There was a working of sources and a and of socializing that went on. And when you're uh, one of a few women doing that job, sometimes people are surprised to see you there. They they were used to a lot of men in politics being covered by a lot of men in the press gallery. And so when there are only one or two of you in a scrum, sometimes sometimes just well-meaning dumb things like I remember someone saying to a colleague of ours who was petite oh why don't we let the littlest one ask the first question they said to her in a scrum not that being me yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got a long long time ago, <laughs> <Come on. laughs> And then I think you'll know, even just from uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry in BC, yeah. their ver version of our Dr. Saqib Shahab in the news this week, talking about death threats and all kinds of personal name calling that she's been subject to. I'm not saying Dr. Shahab probably hasn't had his share of detractors also. I don't know if it's escalated to death threats and name calling, but you can look around to other prominent women and see that often the attacks that they get are not about their work. It's about how they look or really sexist epithets where you're calling women names that are highly sexualized or even threatening sexual assault or rape to punish women for speaking out too much. I mean, that's at an extreme. Certainly, I didn't get that kind of treatment. I would say the most infuriating thing for me as a woman covering politics was the number of times I was seen talking to a man, either another journalist or a politician, privately to try and work on a story to get a scoop. And there'd be a rumor that I was having an affair with someone, yeah. which is not just not just ridiculous in terms of what it would require for me to do my job and probably something, Murray, that you weren't as subject to. But um just well, really an infuriating this, assumption, you know, uh, which frankly, fictionalized journalists don't do a lot to help where you see women, fictitious journalists uh, sleeping with sources for stories and whatnot. But that was probably the most disappointing thing that that I heard about that I thought was a shame because most certainly I didn't do that. I was working really hard to get the stories that I broke. I remember that. It just so crapped me off at the time. And uh, because we're doing this visually, there's probably another reason why uh, I didn't have too many rumors about me sleeping. <laughs> Take a look, for God's sake. But um, all that, like, I, I did notice a big change between the 80s and the 90s when the NDP had, came into power, and we saw a lot more women in prominent roles. Uh, 
great respect for uh, people like Pat Smith and Joan Duncan, who were the first uh, NDP, or sorry, first uh, uh, Saskatchewan cabinet ministers that were women. And that was followed up by a whole series of Jan Janice McKinnons and Louise Samards that, that really changed things in terms of women in politics. But as Arthur's piece suggests, it's still amazing to me that they have so hard to go in, in this area. We're finally seeing an opposition where it's about 50-50. But if you look at women candidates right now, what is it right now, Arthur? Are we looking 50-50 on the NDP side? I've broken it down by person, and it varies radically from one to the other. Again, the NDP is, is approaching 50-50. Last time I checked, they were about uh, just over 20 women out of about 45. Whereas the SAS party, as I said, was 11 out of 61. Green party also aiming for 50-50, PC's not. We know nothing about the liberals because it appears that they're appears not so, yeah. really nominating candidates. <laughs> exactly. So this, this, this is, uh, this is uh, actually bad. On, Sorry, go ahead. I was just gonna say, depending on, on how things go, mm -hmm. uh, given that the NDP, that the uh, SAS party is, is running a male candidate, uh, to replace uh, Nancy Hepner, who is retiring north of Saskatoon there, and uh, that we could actually see fewer women in the ledge uh, in, the coming, um, in the coming legislature than we have in, in the previous. That's fascinating. I could go on this subject all day, but we're going to move forward to uh, the second segment of your podcast with this. Stephanie, thank you so much. This, this was truly fun, and... Uh, I, I hope people got as much out of this as I did. Uh, Arthur, we'll see you on the campaign trail. Uh, and uh, I think by next this time next week, we'll have an election. I think Thanks, that's guys. a safe bet. Yeah. Take care, guys. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks so much. Hi everyone and welcome back to uh, Campaigniacs. This week we're going to be looking at how to get more women engaged in politics and I'm here with Daniel Chartier and also uh, and also Lindsay Brumwell. So I'll just ask both of you to um, you know introduce yourselves and tell me a little bit about uh, what you do. Daniel first. Yeah. Hi, everyone. I'm Danielle Chartier. I am the MLA for Saskatoon Riversdale and soon to be the retired MLA from Saskatoon uh, Riversdale. I'm, I am not quite sure what I'm doing at this next phase of my life, but uh, I will, I'm wrapping up 11 years I'm serving the community that's been my home for most of my life and looking forward to a change of pace. Just, you know, if you want a little bit more information about me, I'm a mom of two. I've got a 22-year-old um, who is heading off to the United Kingdom here this week to do a master's. And I've got a 12-year-old who was one when I was elected and is really looking forward to having her mom around in the spring and fall um, when the legislature is usually sitting. And now we'll go to Lindsay. Hi, uh, thanks for having me. My name's Lindsay Brumwell. I'm the chair for Equal Voice, the Saskatchewan chapter. Uh, in my daytime life, I work in public affairs in the transportation industry, and I volunteer for Equal Voice, and it's an organization that uh, focuses on trying to get parity in all levels of government across Canada, as well as in each province. And we provide training 
networking, programming, and support mechanisms to try and bring more women into local politics. So as we uh, dive into the conversation here, I want to start by asking Lindsay, uh, because your information, you have a lot of the uh, numbers about uh, how Saskatchewan is actually doing on this in terms of getting women engaged in kind of provincial politics on the legislative level. So can you tell me uh, what we know about how far we may have come and how we compare to other provinces? So all progress is uh, sometimes two steps forward and one step back. Uh, Saskatchewan has a long history. Uh, I think everyone's aware that women in our agricultural communities were some of the forefront in the suffragette movement here in the history of the province. So that's something we should be really proud of and a deep connection to our farming community. And then um, things have ebbed and flowed over the years. I can tell you that actually the first female mayor in the entire province was in Moose Jaw, not far from Regina. And today we have only 15 of the 61 MLAs in the province of Saskatchewan are women. And while Danielle is not running, we're always looking for more female candidates or women candidates to step forward. And I can tell you we are not at the very bottom in Canada in terms of uh, women representation in our provincial legislature, but we're definitely not near the top. And if you compare us at all with some of our trading countries, um, it's a bit, it's a bit all over the place. We're probably in the bottom quartile. And it's looking to me based on my own research that this election isn't looking like it's going to change things. Uh, We're not seeing uh, a slate that's looking anywhere near uh, balanced. If you take all the parties together, uh, if you look at them one by one, we have the Saskatchewan party so far nominating 11 women out of 60 that they fielded so far. The NDP cl- pretty close to 50%. Um, the PCs five of 26 so far, and the Greens saying that they're aiming uh, for 50-50. So depending on how things go, we might even see fewer women uh, in the legislature uh, in this coming, after this coming campaign than we saw in the last one. I'll start with Danielle. What is your reaction to that? It's disappointing for sure. I can I can tell you as a woman who's been serving in the legislature uh, for 11 years, I've been part of a caucus where there's been few of us and I've was really proud in 2016 to be a a member of the caucus where we reached uh, gender parity. We were half and half. Um, And it's close to half and half now, but we won a by-election where we ran a male candidate. So it's uh, slightly, it's six and seven right now. But I can tell you from my experience, and it's not that my male colleagues aren't awesome, um, but I can tell you the the nature of the conversations that we've had around the caucus table and um, the kinds of topics that we choose to bring up as a as an opposition, I think has really changed because of um, the the balance around our caucus. It's just the reality is when when you have uh, multiple voices, it makes room for multiple perspectives, and we instead of getting caught up into a group think or not thinking about things that aren't part of your lived reality, the, the more voices you have, the, uh, the more likely you're going to be more representative of the people that we serve. And I, I know, for example, uh, since 2016, uh, we have my, my colleague, Nicole Saar, who was uh, uh, 
diligent and passionate about making sure that we had uh, not only job protected leave for women who were uh, fleeing domestic abuse, but she she got that part passed and convinced the government to come on board. But another part of that was getting paid days. So uh, those were our conversations that happen um, at a caucus level, but get really pushed when you've got uh, support around that table to, to make that happen. So that that's just one example. I can give you others, but uh, it, I, speaking from experience, it changes the tone around the table, but it also changes what comes forward. Yeah, and I think that that is actually something that we should focus on a bit more, Lindsay. Just what does having a more balanced legislature with 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 more diversity of voices do for politics, and and and, and do for the kinds of uh, uh, for the kind of representation that Saskatchewan people actually get out of their legislative assembly? Well, absolutely. Just over fifty percent of the Saskatchewan population identifies as. Uh, women or other. And that basically means at a minimum trying to get a balanced uh, elected office. Democracy is supposed to represent people. So a bare bones minimum standard would be focusing on trying to get there's 50 plus percent of the women uh, and other are in that category. Having representation that represents that minimum standard would be a great first step to uh, opening doors for further diversity. Uh, that doesn't mean people shouldn't have other diversities or um, identification shouldn't still run. In fact, please do. It's however, it's a nice uh, starting point. So then what's actually, uh, you know, getting in the way? Because I don't doubt that there's uh, that there's a very large number of talented women that could no doubt make a difference in politics. What's getting in the way of them actually making their way through the system, getting nominated, winning elections? Where are the filters operating in your experience? We'll start with Danielle. Well, I think when women are nominated, we don't have any trouble winning elections. I don't think that that is the case. I, I firmly believe and I believe evidence shows it. It's really around political parties in the nomination process um, and, and also um, uh, women not necessarily seeing themselves in politics. You've got women living in, pardon me, you've got women leading in every sphere across our province, um, in their in their communities, in their workplaces, um, urban and rural. We have amazing uh, leaders, but sometimes a they haven't been asked, b they haven't been asked multiple times, and sometimes that's what it takes because you need to see yourself reflected and and and. Honestly, we, we were maybe doing a little bit better, but, but when we think of politicians, we're not always thinking about the, the uh, woman with a child at home. Like we, we, that, is not, that is not the standard practice here still, even though, even though that is the world in which we all live. Um, so the issue around leadership uh, around parties, I can tell you how we've gotten there as, in, as new Democrats. And it, make no mistake, this didn't happen by chance. We've been working on it uh, for years. I, I was part of the, the New Democratic Women in 2007 when we brought forward a motion and had a full learning day at one of our conventions about why electing more women matters, 
we got leadership on board and in the election campaign in in the leadership campaign in 2013 i believe it was uh, i'm right about that date um we had leaders uh, both ryan miley and and cam and trent were all committed to uh, more diverse legislator legislatures that was part of their policy um and they've carried forward that we've gotten to where we are because we've had uh, leadership at the party level in our caucus um, making sure that we're tapping women on the shoulder following up with them um, we have there it was interesting in your article on friday there was a reference to quotas we we, we don't have quotas in the ndp if we have a system by which we make sure that that we don't have our blinders on in a nomination that everybody um, who should be in the race is in the race uh, and so I, I get a little prickly when someone uh, says that we have quotas. That's not it at all. It's about making sure that we are identifying and supporting people to try to be successful in nominations. It has taken leadership. Uh, other places that have achieved uh, a higher level of diversity, it really has It's got to be uh, leadership across the political party. And what are you finding, Lindsay? Is this more a problem of getting women into the process at the beginning before nominations begin? Or are we seeing that women who have already gotten involved and thrown their hats into the ring are being uh, filtered out during the nomination process or during the general election? What is, where are the barriers here? So it's a bit of a multifaceted um approach at, because there's so many b barriers. So one of the big things is if you're looking at party politics, which is the provincial or federal level, we would recommend women start getting involved with their parties earlier. Uh, like for example, if you're thinking about running for provincial MLA, uh, start getting involved with the party that you align with most closely today for the next election, not this one, but the next one. And we would highly recommend volunteering on someone's campaign right now to learn more about what campaigning is, what a candidate goes through, what the roles are, how to build your team. Those tactical things and knowledge that uh, women tend not to be as familiar with and kind of demystify that process. The other reason is to learn about your internal party's uh, process for nomination. What is it going to take to seek the nomination and how, how to go about that? Also, how to identify people within the party who could support you on a campaign and help you with your nomination. You're probably the hardest campaign will be the nomination process. A lot of women don't jump to provincial first off. They're going to start with something a little bit closer to home and issues that they're passionate about. So think about um, asking women to run for school board or counselor or the RM or resort towns and those kinds of things. And the first step really is for society as a whole to start looking at women as uh, potential leaders. Everyone knows a woman that's a leader. Everybody does. It's your mom or the lady who runs the community centers or the different things. They take leadership roles. Now, how do we translate that into getting them onto a ballot? And the first step is to ask them. Like, it's up to each of us to ask a woman to run. 
And Daniel's comment about, you know, women needing to be asked more than once. Statistically, a woman needs to be asked five times before they start thinking about it because they'll start running through like, okay, I have this family obligation. What about my career? Do I have enough money? What is this going to do to my reputation? Is my husband going to be okay with it or my partner? You know, what are my parents going to think? And just, it just trickles through where there was a great uh, event with Christy Clark and her comment was men are flattered. Oh, you think I could run? Absolutely. And it's a completely different <laughs> to it. Yeah. So one, I would say women need to think of themselves and recognize their leadership skills. They do have a lot more experience than they give themselves credit for. And second of all, when you see those women in your community, prod them in the right direction and ask them to run. And then tell them where you think they would be good at, where they can, can contribute. Because it's one thing to be asked, but then it's like, well, do you mean provincial or do you mean for school board? Like, give them, I think you'd be a really good MP or I think you'd be a really good Reeve and we need you to run because we want you to do the X and you're passionate about that and really can start at a grassroots level. And I'm just going to put a little plug in here. At Equal Voice, we recognize across the province there is a lot of organizations focused on women leadership and we're really trying to focus our um our programming on those tactical things to demystify so that women can figure out how to run a campaign for a nomination. Um, and we open it up, not just to women, but to their entire team. We were actually encouraging people in our last campaign training to bring their teenagers, their moms, dads, to come to our campaign training because anyone can put up a lawn sign and you're gonna need that support network. So it's best to get them educated and trained up around you to give you the best shot through getting that through that nomination process. The other thing is parties can definitely step forward with um, trying to tap women that they see and encouraging them and just kind of uh, gently opening those doors. And it's always good to have a champion. So within those party systems, if there's men or women, look around, see who the up and comers are and be their champion. You know, there's mentorship programs, do it in politics too. I, I just want to actually jump in and, and, and ask if we can explore some of these issues a bit more through your career, Danielle. How did you first get your start in politics and, 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 and how did you navigate some of these barriers that we've been discussing? Well, I think fortunately for me, um, I, I grew up in a really political household. My parents were both uh, active New Democrats in Riversdale, but they were also community activists. And I grew up in a household where um, there's seven kids, not all of us are New Democrats, but my, my, my parents made it very clear that uh, political parties reflect values. Um, you need to know what your values are, and then you choose the political party that best reflects who you are. And if there's things you disagree, it's your obligation to get involved and and make those differences. So I, I grew up uh, going to political events, um, I, but I wasn't, I wasn't the amazing 18-year-old who is the activist doing her work. I, I worked at Louis. Um, I probably spent more time at Louis at the campus pub when I was 19 or 20, and it, my, my activist spark really started when my oldest daughter was born when I was 27. It was like a, a light went on, and I very much about supporting uh, women and families, whether it's childcare. I was a breastfeeding advocate about making sure women and families had good support there. Uh, the Children's Discovery Museum was something I was very involved in. But So my activist spark really was lit not until I had my own child. And I, at that point, it's not like I wasn't interested in politics, but Hennessy was born and I 
got involved um, in in partisan politics and sat on the Riversdale executive. And I, I had been comfortable with all of that growing up, though that wasn't unfamiliar. And uh, I I can remember when when uh, Lauren Calvert um, he he was. It's always an MLA's responsibility to think about the future and to try to uh, do succession planning. So he had, Mr. Calvert had talked to several people, but uh, he'd asked me at one point uh, when Ophelia was only six months old if I was interested in running at some point because he wouldn't be the MLA anymore and my initial reaction um, was oh yeah like somewhere down the future and then he called me six months later and I, I almost hung up the phone um, <laughs> a moment of panic because Ophelia <laughs> was so little and I I wanted to do it I feel super passionate uh, at that point work family issues were, were my thing but I can remember coming home and saying to my then husband uh, Lauren, Lauren's stepping down and wants me to run, but I can't do it because Ophelia is one. And my then husband said, well, if you don't do it, I'm going to. And I'm like, well, <laughs> it's the same one-year-old that we share. <laughs> like, I don't quite get um, how it's something that you see. And so it, I, I was, I embarked upon it a little bit reluctantly at first, but I, I, I was fortunate to have a huge family network of support. I lived two blocks away from my mom and dad. Um, my sister has no children and is like super mom. We call her mommy auntie. Um, she's been amazing for my kids, but that's how it happened for me. I was interested in politics, but not super engaged, kind of did my own thing and then found the thing that set my heart on fire and that, that, compelled me into politics and someone saw that I maybe had some qualities that would make me a good MLA and that someone was very influential and made me feel like I could do it so did you feel that you faced uh, different expectations about uh, family life than some of your male colleagues within caucus and within the legislature I, I, I think early I think early on, 100%. I mean, I, I had people on the doorstep asking me who was going to look after my children. Um, in the same campaign, the the male candidate for the other uh, the other party had a child younger than mine at that point, but I was having people ask me about uh, my kids and who would care for them. Uh, it's It's been much better. I have male colleagues who have had children um, in recent years, and that certainly has made me really pleased. Um, I can remember Ryan is great and brings his kids everywhere, but I can remember with Cam, calling Cam on a Friday morning, and he was the leader of our party, and he was home with his kids on a Friday morning because his wife um, was at her job. And it, it, um, it was felt incredibly supportive at that point, but certainly I, and, and I think that there's probably moments where I've held myself up to a standard that other people aren't necessarily thinking. I know I'm a single mom and have been for nine of my 11 years as an MLA and, and uh, my youngest was super clingy. She's amazing, but it was awfully fond of her mom and uh, liked to come up to the podium, liked to hold on to my leg. Uh, I, there were lots of times where I felt like I was neither the best MLA nor the best mother. <laughs> um, but I, like, I always got the job done. It never looked pretty, but uh, it's still the, the, the work still got done. But I, I do feel like there, for part of my career, uh, it, 
it has the childcare piece or being being a parent has been a challenge and it's been so great i've got as you know nicole sar had a had a baby the first time that's happened in a long time here in the legislature and uh where we've all been super supportive on both sides of the house of that and i would argue that in i think in the 11 years that i've been here i hear my colleagues uh, on both sides of the house who have children actually get up and talk about their kids more than 11 years ago when i was first elected so now of course just to round out this uh this uh, talk, Danielle, I, uh, the other side of this coin is, of course, how to retain women in politics. And of course, you 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 are not running again. So I just wanted to ask whether there's anything that could have been done differently uh, to keep you around longer and, and, and why you're choosing to leave. Well, I'm I'm choosing to leave because it's been a, a tough four plus years. My my dad in the last election campaign broke his hip a week into it. And my so I'm that sandwich gen generation. I had had parents in in their 80s. My mom is is uh, still here and is 88. Um, but I have young children too, and it has been a hard slog. Uh, between trying to make sure my dad was okay and making sure that my kids were okay. Um, so I, it was interesting because I, when I told one of, well, Trent Weatherspoon actually, who has been incredibly supportive um, all along. I, I've I've got great colleagues, but Trent, I can, this is gonna make me cry. So when I, when I told my caucus I couldn't run and Trent's like, Danielle, we need you. What can we do to, what can we do to support you? Can we, like, you don't have to be here every day during session. Like, what can we do to make sure you, you can uh, run and keep doing this job? How can we be of help? So I think those are questions that we have to ask. What can we do to keep uh, supporting uh, people who have care responsibilities uh, to do this job because those voices are really important. We're, women aren't a homogenous group and we certainly need more women who don't just look like me. Um, I'm awfully white. Uh, we, we need a lot more diversity in this place but uh, constantly asking those questions about how, how do we make sure that this is a place where, where people can come and serve their fellow citizens. I mean, there, there's there been stuff along my legislative career as a woman. I mean, I've had, like I said, people asking me who was going to take care of my kids. I've had people comment about my somewhat unruly curly hair. I've had people comment about my jewelry. I've had a SAS party MLA tell me my skirt was too short, a female MLA. I've had, as a committee chair, I've had a male colleague during a recess and pat his lap and invite me to sit on his lap like there's lousy things that still happen in this uh uh this century and it as it like in this la in these last few years but i really would argue that the big piece is making sure people can balance their work and family and we're not just talking about kids we're talking about uh, elders as well, but I think the other piece for me, I, I'm a bit of an inter, uh, interloper on social media. I go and I peek and I don't always post because I would need to spend an hour posting. I'm not very good at the like one-off and so I am a bit of an interloper. And But I would say that the vitriol of social media probably keeps uh, some people out too. I would argue that the biggest piece is uh, work and family challenges for sure, but uh, and I, I never would have said it was that political environment. I mean, I'm a pretty tough uh, 
I, I've got pretty thick skin. My th skin is considerably thicker than it once was, but I would say that uh, social media uh, has not been particularly kind to lots of women. I mean, I don't count myself in that. I've been pretty lucky, um, but I think thinking about how we navigate that world and make it a bit less harsh would be, I'm not harsh. I'm not that women aren't capable of dealing with garbage, but unfortunate or tough debates, but it's hard to deal with garbage comments. Right. It seems like some of the uh, personal stuff uh, does seem to come towards women a bit more often and is often a lot more toxic. We only have to think of Catherine McKenna to oh. see an example of that. Well, thanks to both of you for being on the uh, podcast today. Uh, and thanks to all of our uh, to all of our readers and all of our listeners for being on uh, Campaigniacs once again, and we'll see you next week.